Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products in the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sector. Why not register and join the webinar being held on the 24th of March on AI auto-contouring capabilities with Thera Panacea? And you can also catch up with OSL at the BIR conference on the 30th and 31st of March, as well as visiting our booth at Estro this year. As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists, as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and workflows of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 88. My name is Naman Jokhansson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. Big thank you to our last guest Noelle Clerkin who talked about her experience of being a diagnostic radiographer, training as a consultant in mammography and mammography as a screening tool. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guests for today, uh, the amazing duo of educational so Steph and Tyler, the two driven and hardworking diagnostic students um, who are just about to qualify uh, and have a huge passion for public health and social prescribing. Hi both, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, all good. Have the nerves settled down a bit? Yeah, we'll be fine once we get going. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so we'll come to you first, Steph. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm a mature student. Um, currently, like Naaman said, about to finish in our final year of diagnostic radiography at the University of Salford. Um, I do enjoy a bit of a challenge and keeping busy. So I'm a mum of two young children. So a question I get asked a lot is how I actually fit everything in, including all this extracurricular thing. Um, but I do believe if you've got a bit of a passion for something and you believe in it, then you make it work. Plus, I enjoy it. So it's an added bonus, really doesn't feel like work does it when you love something <laughs> no not at all so Tyler can you introduce yourself and a little bit about kind of why you went into diagnostic radiography yes yeah, so my name is Tyler I'm also a third year diagnostic radiography student at Salford with Steph um, I actually wanted to do diagnostic radiography back in 2012 it was now so quite a long time ago um, so I did a diagnostic techniques unit at um, sixth form I just absolutely found it fascinating, uh, but unfortunately I didn't get into uni for it. So I did what every 18 year old does, went to uni and did something else. Um, then I became a teacher and actually ended up teaching that same unit. And I wasn't madly in love with teaching. Like I love speaking to people, um, if you haven't noticed, but I just didn't love all the stuff out of the classroom. Um, so my mum said, why don't you just give it another go? Give it radiography a go. So I applied to one uni for one course and got in and here I am now and I'm so glad that I did I honestly couldn't see myself doing anything else now 
So in terms of kind of working together, how's it felt? I know on social media recently, you've been posting pictures of you kind of leaving uni. How does that feel thinking, gosh, I'm going to be qualified soon? So it's it's very scary. We've sort of talked about this. We almost live in each other's pockets. So we're kind of, is it fair to say a bit apprehensive? to see what's going to happen when we qualify um, in terms of our little duo. I mean, I have no doubts at all that it's going to continue that sort of pace, but it's just trying to fit it in with a full-time job as well. But I think if we can do it doing a full-time degree, then I don't think it should be much of an issue at this point. Um, but yeah, we definitely like to continue it on in our professional journey as well and promote it even more. I think although we've done all this amazing work as students, I do think when we actually qualify, that does open more doors and gives us the confidence to feel that we can do a bit more as well. Steph, why did you pick diagnostic and not therapeutic? So really, I left school and wanted to become a teacher. But I think that's quite a natural career path for most kids in school, being inspired by the teachers. And I didn't know a thing about radiography. So I sort of did my um, A-levels. And then just before I was about to start, uni I decided that teaching wasn't for me and dropped out um and then I sort of flitted from job to job didn't really know what I was doing and then I sat in an office one day and thought I can't do this anymore and I applied for a care home job completely out of the blue my husband was like what are you doing well I don't know I just want to give it a go I was very lucky this care home took me on um let me do some training and from there I sort of built up a career and then a job came up in the NHS as a radiography assistant and I was like I'm just going to apply for that because I'd always wanted to work for the NHS didn't expect anything of it and I was successful in that interview which was very bizarre Um, and that was within diagnostic radiography worked there for a couple of years and sort of started realizing that this was what I wanted to do I had a genuine passion for it as well which was really exciting and especially more so during covid I think it makes you realise that life is really too short to not do something that you love and enjoy as well. And I just love that the world of diagnostic radiography is so fast-paced, adaptive, and there are no two days that are the same. Um, and yeah, I basically didn't want any regrets. I always say to people, it doesn't matter if you don't know what you want to do when you leave school. I am a perfect example of that at my age. Not particularly old, but old enough to wish I'd have found it sooner in terms of therapeutic genuinely I didn't know anything about therapeutic radiography so it wasn't anything that was on my radar at the time would I do it now possibly maybe one day watch this space don't say that to Joe right now (laughs) we have a workforce crisis (laughs) it's never too late never too late there's an MSc So, Tali, what's been the highlights for you um, studying to become a diagnostic radiographer? I think academically my highlights have been a placement aspect, really, and learning so much new knowledge and being able to actually go out and practice it. Um, that's been a massive highlight at uni. And I just I just love it when the patients come through the door, you get to have a good chinwag, you like unconsciously applying all the knowledge that uni has told you and then you look back and you're reflecting it after you're like oh my goodness like how did I do that 
Um, so that is definitely a university highlight for me. Um, of course, we've got our other highlights. So the social subscriber day last year was is definitely up there. Um, and all of the opportunities that came from that. So we then met quite a few people at ADC that had seen that and was able to network a little bit more because people like we didn't kind of blend into the background. People had an idea of who we were. And we've been able to speak to Sheffield Hallam, thanks to you, Joe. And we also spoke to Birmingham City this week as well. Um, and our own uni is recognised as well. So I think like these are just all massive highlights that we're able to go out and speak because me and Steph love speaking. <laughs> and I'd also say as well, the friendship that I've built with Steph. So we was friends anyway in first year. Um, but I'd say like I messaged her with my, my silly idea. I was like, do you think it's silly? Shall we do it? And I think just working on this together and spending hours on teams together all of the time has definitely brought us closer. Um, even our kids know who I am and I've not met them in person. So <laughs> that's definitely been a highlight as well for me. So Steph, obviously social prescribing, having been a student starting and going into departments, where did you see or how did you find out about the opportunity you know, around social prescribing? So it was actually, I can't take credit for it. Like Tylee said, a lot of it was her original idea. However, we did have a lecture in first year from um, Dr. Tracy O'Regan. So she's a professional officer at the Society of Radiographers and that was online and it was essentially around making every contact count, which falls under the umbrella of social prescribing. Um, I did give Tally a bit of a bee in a bonnet and she got the ball rolling with the um, AHP social prescribing champion and then came up with the idea for the Twitter takeover. And I'd say at that point, we didn't really have a great idea of how we could implement that in placement. And it has been sort of like the doors that have opened since. And I think one of the biggest sort of um, aids to that was when we had meetings with um, Greater Manchester, Wigan and Tameside um, CCGs and they were actually the ones that pointed us in the direction of active signposting for our role so again it was something we had heard about but weren't too sure and with active signposting it's designed more for diagnostic and therapeutic radiographers as well that don't necessarily see their patients maybe as often as a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist where they go out into the community it's more about having a knowledge of those local services and sort of directing your patients to them so for example smoking cessation healthy lifestyle if you have a patient that expresses to you that they might be feeling lonely um and you can direct them to a befriending group so i'd say it's more in our role having more of a knowledge about those services and where they are within your local area but it's definitely that has helped us understand how we can implement it more within practice as well tyle what is social prescribing because i would imagine for especially maybe student radiographers or student ahp students um or even potentially those who are graduated, you hear the word prescribing and automatically go, uh, I'm not a like non-medical prescriber, so I definitely can't do that. Can you kind of break down some of the kind of theoretical underpinnings of what social prescribing is? Of course. So that's actually one of the, that is actually one of the big barriers. The fact it's got the word prescribing in people are like, that's not my business. And I think that's what turns a lot of radiographers off the idea. Um, it is sometimes called community referral as well, which I feel like may entice them a little bit more. 
Um, but it is a way for healthcare professionals to connect people to non-medical services. So we're talking your voluntary services in the community, uh, your smoking cessation services that are away from the hospital site. And in the long run, it should help to improve health outcomes. Uh, the patient experience should be better. Because if a patient has come in for an x-ray and then they've gone away with this resource, you'd like to think that they would see that as a good experience. Um, and it should also reduce health inequalities as well. And, taking into account, especially where me and Steph are both at for our placement sites, the kind of demographics we serve, I think it's really important that we can reduce those health inequalities. Uh, but we do also have to be mindful that if everywhere isn't social prescribing or active signposting, then that's another health inequality in itself. So we need to make sure that it's kind of being done across the board. And there's actually four different levels of social prescribing. So your lowest input is your active signposting. So this is really suited to kind of snappy interactions with your patients, your diagnostic and your therapeutic radiographers. Um, the next one up is referring to a link worker. So this is something that we can do, and this is for your patients where you think they wouldn't have the ability to contact the link worker themselves. They wouldn't have the ability to self-refer. Um, but this is also something that would absolutely have to be discussed within your department to discuss about consent, documentation, especially if you're passing on that patient's details. I wouldn't say it's for people to just start doing themselves off the bat. Um, AHPs can actually be the social prescriber themselves. So we see this often with occupational therapists or speech and language therapists, and they have the time to sit down with that person really get down to the root of what matters to that person and they can put actions into place. Uh, so I actually spoke to a couple of occupational therapy students and they were saying how they can take people to clubs for the first time as part of their role. And obviously that, I'd love to do that, but it's not something that we can do as diagnostics. Um, but that's them acting as the social prescriber. And then you've kind of got your top tier of actually promoting and growing and developing social prescribing. Um, so doing this podcast today, that is us promoting it and hopefully that will spread the word and grow social prescribing even more. Um, but I'd definitely say for people getting started in this kind of area, think about the patients that you see. So I know that where I'm placed, and I think it's the same for you, Steph, as well, there's quite a high amount of people that we're getting where it's for a chest x-ray and they're a smoker. So quick, simple question, have you thought about giving up smoking? If they say no, we, we don't need to push it. We're not there to push it. But you could ask that person that says, oh, I have, but I'm not really too sure of how I would do that. And you could just give them the number to the service and they can self-refer for that. Um, I'd also say researching the local services as well. So if you do highlight that there's a high amount of smokers, finding out what the number is for the smoking cessation service. And it just makes it a little bit more smoother. You could pop a little crib sheet up in, in your department and then everybody's got access to go, there's the number. And it's literally taken up like a minute of your time because obviously we're quite stretched in the hospitals as it is at the moment. So we're not saying it's a, a big, like long process. It's just a case of knowing what you've got in the area. Tyler, why wouldn't you push it? So if you talked about making every contact count and you know a patient smoker and they're coming for a chest x-ray, why wouldn't you push it in that time? I think... From a realistic perspective, when I think about like a diagnostic A&E, I can't see us having the time, if I'm honest. But I would say documenting on Chris, uh, so our radiologists are documenting it on there, 
the GP may see that when they get the report and that's a conversation that they could have. Um, but I, if I'm completely honest, I don't think we have the time in our A&Es to push it. I don't know if you've got anything else to add as well, Steph. It probably does come down to time. And I know we sound very hypocritical here because we say that one of the biggest barriers is time. So we say, well, what about active signposting? However, is it going to take us another five or ten minutes to be able to push this patient to get the same result or have we just sort of planted that seed in the head where they're going to go away and actually think about it and they might not listen to us but when they go back to the GP or they see the nurse and somebody else mentions it that might bring it back and they might think oh well somebody else mentioned that the diagnostic radiographer mentioned that to me and maybe it is something and sometimes it just takes a few people to be on the same path and mentioning the same thing each time for some people to then take action a bit later on down the line it's the real premise isn't it behind every every contact counts and you know for anyone who has an addiction whether that's smoking whether that's alcohol whether that's drugs um initially when that first discussion is raised it probably isn't necessarily the right time or the right headspace for someone to really contemplate it but if the same kind of experience is happening over and over and people are constantly saying the same message of have you considered do you need help and support is it something that you know you could refer yourself to i think it it's kind of growing the seed but then evolving it over time isn't it and giving lots of access to resources consistently across the pathway. Steph, why do you personally want to improve people's health? I just think it's really difficult. So from a personal point of view, and let's get down sort of to the nitty gritty here. My granddad was a very heavy smoker. And this is part of the reason that we want to push the smoking cessation so he sadly passed away when I was 13 that was it was five days before my 13th birthday I remember that very vividly and I remember him coughing for months months beforehand and wouldn't go and see a doctor and ask for help and eventually he did and he went for a chest x-ray and unfortunately by that point it was too late but at that stage he was 71 so if people had potentially spoken to him beforehand over the years that he had been for other x-rays for example or seen other healthcare professionals about him giving up smoking or even cutting down at least then I'm not saying that would have changed the outcome but that definitely sort of spares me on from a personal point of view to be able to want to be that change in somebody else's life so they don't go through that as well. Oh thank you for sharing that with us. Tyler what's your kind of personal perspective why is why are you so passionate about this I think for me it's the demographic that we serve and so I'm from originally from near where my placement site is and I'm very aware of the social issues that we've got in those demographics and I think coming from a social science background because that's what I did my first degree in I really kind of I want to try and level the playing field one patient at a time just try and chip away at that playing field because you really do see the disparities um when you speak to these patients um so for me it's kind of leveling it out equaling opportunities on the playing field um i feel like i'm quite fortunate that i've managed to go on and get a degree compared to some people um from where i'm from 
and I think being able to help people's health and help them live a healthy lifestyle it's not just about smoking it could be people getting help for their finances um, social issues loneliness and so for me it's about leveling the playing field I would say a lot of people do make that assumption, don't they? When you talk about social prescribing or, or public health, people automatically think smoking cessation, alcohol cessation is kind of the two things that people go to. But it's really important, especially with the cost of living crisis. We see it within the oncology pathway a lot, especially through rad chat with patients contacting us saying we can't afford to go to go to treatment. Um, that actually that support around finances, social benefit system, like it's anyone who's ever tried to fill out those forms I remember from clinical patients bringing in the the um, benefit forms saying oh can you help me complete this and when you think the average reading age in the UK is eight you know the complexity of some of these forms is just mind-blowing um let alone the evidence that you have to collate um that again we charge for it's it seems ironic that you're helping and supporting someone access finances and yet they are having to pay to access the records that will help them get those benefits. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Have you seen more appetite since kind of the cost of living crisis around social prescribing? Or, or maybe even for patients asking you within your clinical time? Uh, to be fair, if I'm completely honest, we've not been on placement since December. <laughs> so I think since the cost of living has really kind of exploded... Uh, we've not actually been in a clinical setting um, but I can only imagine that there has been a lot of talk about people not being able to afford or people really struggling with their finances um, but yeah we haven't been in clinical unfortunately. I'd sort of say so I work as a radiology assistant in my placement site um, on a weekend so I'm still there every so often I'm there all weekend this weekend which I think I'm crazy for but hey ho and we're on electives next week so specifically at the minute I uh, work in MRI and CT so we we do see a lot of poorly patients but because of where my placement site is and sort of we're a specialist orthopedic centre so we get people from all over the country and a lot of them need to come to us for a CT scan or an MRI which I think is crazy but I understand that but the actual travel costs for people the time it's taken for them to get to us the expenses and they do get that back a lot of people because they can claim that back however i think it's very important to understand that this might not be sustainable as well to sort of continue that and i do think the nhs is one big whole system we should have some sort of collaborative way of that patient being able to have their scan we're nearer their home for us to be able to access those records for when they do attend as a patient for us it just seems a shame that during such a crisis and how big the nhs is that it's not necessarily an option for people to have it's similar for us in therapeutic i mean there's not that many centers across the country and department of health says people should only travel 45 minutes but i think on average it's like 57 minutes if not an hour that people travel one way to have treatment it's yeah it's not nice but I suppose it's what you can do with that care when that patient does come to you absolutely you still make sure you're giving them the best possible experience um you're still making sure that you're delivering the highest quality care no matter how far they've come if they've come from down the road that's fine if they've come from the other side of the country I don't treat any patients any differently based on 
where they live but I do take into account that they might have had a longer journey to get there than some so they might need a little bit of extra care a little bit more TLC before they do go for the scans. Join us, RadChat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting-edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Callie Palmer. Gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive, practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more, and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May, 2023 at London Excel Centre. So Steph, if someone is listening to this and thinking about social prescribing or signposting, how would they get started? So I think it's one of those, if you talk from a student point of view, I would say go for it. So people don't tend to share their ideas because they're worried that it might be silly or that it might not be good enough. So I think we're all very guilty as human beings of not liking change. And that's normal. That's just a normal human nature. And very much in the NHS, we're just, it's historical, it's in grade process and it just works So we just get on with it and let it happen. However, I think if we'd have not come up with this idea of social prescribing and sort of putting that out there, I couldn't imagine my student journey and what that would be like now if we'd have sat back and not pushed this as well. So yes, social prescribing, if that's something you want to get into, fantastic. However, if you've got another idea as well, then I definitely say go for it. Um, Joe has reminded me on more than one occasion that you're never just a student. It is a bit of a guilty habit sometimes to say, oh, but just, and I know other students around the country probably feel the same too, um, especially with all the pressures. But I definitely say be brave, come out with your ideas. If you want any specific help, on social prescribing, active signposting, you've got places like the Personalised Care Institute, you've got the National Academy for Social Prescribing, there's actually e-learning for health modules you can do, so we all have to do our mandatory training as students as well for e-learning for health, there's actually a module on social prescribing, 
Um, I'd say have a look and speak to your placement site, speak to your discharge teams because they usually have some sort of information on social prescribing or active signposting. Um, but also primary care as well seem to be very good at it and they tend to have a big directory. So if you want to try and implement that in your placement site, it might be worth trying to find a directory at first and go in with that and sort of discuss it with your department lead or with your colleagues and see what they say. But yeah, I definitely say be brave. You don't know where that path will lead if you don't take that first step. I don't think until you qualify, you don't appreciate that the imposter syndrome that you have as a student is exactly the same as when you're qualified. Then like nothing changes. And and I think sometimes it's really hard to get that across because I certainly had that. I did loads of extracurricular stuff, but I was really tentative because I was like, well, you can't change practice because I'm just a student. Um, and then you qualify and you're like, well, I can't change practice because I'm just a band five or I'm newly qualified. So at some point in your career, you do have to kind of brush off that imposter syndrome and go, actually, I'm not just anything. I'm a healthcare professional that wants to make changes for my patients and for kind of my peers, because it does give you job satisfaction as well when you know that you're making a real difference to patients' lives. Um, and so I think it is about kind of brushing it off and just getting started and opening up the conversations, you know, just saying to colleagues, oh, I've got an idea or have you have you checked out Radicational? Have you heard about social prescribing? Is that something that we can do? I think it's having those conversations and drawing people's attention to it. And obviously, uh, Tyler, you may may have kind of seen this, that there will be more of an appetite now to get more training and education because of the change in that have happened within HCPC. Have you kind of have you already started to feel about a bit of that change around public health awareness? I'd definitely say so and I'd say that we've seen it from both of our placement sites. Um, so we did do a CPD session for the radiographers at Steph's placement site. Um, they really took on board kind of what we were thinking and then I had a couple of meetings with our director um, of radiology at Tameside as well, uh, so the divisional director, um, and he's really keen to kind of take on board how we can do that. And I was surprised that he had the time to speak to me, if I'm honest. Um, But I feel like they're seeing it at the top, that there's definitely going to be a need for this. Um, I mean, we need to do it to be compliant as well. So... I'm hoping it'll kind of go from the top, go from the bottom, meet in the middle and we'll all be social prescribing away. (laughs) Can we just stop and appreciate how amazing that is that being just a student, you're speaking to the director. You're definitely not just a student. Anyone can do it. I think managers at the moment like people to come to them with solutions to problems. Firstly, so they don't have to deal with it because they've got enough on their plate. But also it isn't just for a manager or a leader to always do everything. It has to be coming right from an assistant, you know, to the CEO. And I think that's really important just to remember for anyone listening. So both of you, you have been involved a lot with extracurricular opportunities, um, highly active, not just around social prescribing. Um, As a lecturer and speaking personally, I have seen through COVID and continued after COVID a real lack of engagement and you know I understand that there's loads of reasons for why that potentially might be but what can we do to re-enthuse 
students who are training to be healthcare professionals because it is hard out there placement's hard it's challenging cost of living is hard uh, university fees are high you know what do we need to do maybe even just helping me with my day-to-day job how can I re-enthuse the future workforce to realize that actually getting involved in extracurricular opportunities is going to make you a better practitioner um, and maybe help support you with those engagement levels I think something that's actually been raised at our university and we and Steph are going in to do a talk about this is that the students don't actually understand what CPD is. Uh, So a third year actually went to our course leader and said, I I don't know what it is. And I think starting really basic at the root of what is CPD? Why is it valuable? That might give people a bit more of a fire in their belly if they can see that they can make change. So I like to think that me and Steph have made a little bit of change we've got people talking we've got a conversation going and if people could see that other students are doing that there's loads of students in the forum that are doing that um I think if we kind of advertise that across our universities these people are doing fantastic things you can too and that might also help um and I think just kind of making it a bit more explicit like I'm not gonna lie me and Steph do go searching for these opportunities and we're not afraid to kind of email someone or do a really long search on like Twitter for different opportunities um, and I appreciate some people don't have the time to do that they don't have the resources uh, so maybe actually just explicitly promoting as well to students so kind of highlighting what it is highlighting the importance and then explicitly promoting it is what I would do and kind of making it clear that they will need that folder when they go for a job and if the folder's not up to scratch they may not get a job <laughs> that might uh, push a few people as well. See, that's really interesting because I think that's where it differs for radiotherapy and oncology or therapeutic radiographers because Numan and, <laughs> and I had this conversation actually because both him and I, when we first graduated, although, okay, some years apart, um, I would take my CPD portfolio and they would do a bit of a like, oh, why have you brought that? You don't need that. Is that something in your interview generically as a diagnostic radiographer that you do? Yeah, so we're told that we have to take it. They look through it. They'll sometimes ask questions. So, so what did you learn from the CPD? Why is this piece of CPD you did re- um, valuable for the role? They'll look at the reflections that you've put in. Uh, so it can be a bit of a mixture. I went to my placements out and they're very aware of all of the work that I do. So they kind of did a bit of a flick through, made sure it was all right. Um, but I certainly know for some other students, they've had a real grilling where they've come back with the folder. It's got post-it notes with questions on and they've really asked them why they've got that CPD in that folder. Sorry, I've been an interviewer. I would never do that. You've sent a personal statement in. I mean, why would I need an extra book? I'm sorry for anyone listening and you don't agree with me, but I don't see the point. The whole point of you coming for an interview for me is to get you a job and to find out the best out of you. I don't want to read a booklet. I'd rather you tell me, because if you can't talk, if you're not going to sell yourself in an interview, bring in a, I don't know, maybe I've been controversial, I'm going to get told off, but nah, not for me. Get rid of the book. Paperless. I was going to say, that's probably, because we do all of our CPD stuff with um, our students on Pebblepad, which is kind of a repository. So it's interesting that we've gone fully digital. Um, So the idea of students printing some off, although actually in my shed, I do think I've got some student um, portfolios that I marked uh, probably about 10 years ago. (laughs) I can't get rid of them because they're all in plastic wallets. So yeah, save the planet, get get rid of the paper portfolios. 
but why do you, why do you think it's important that students do extracurricular things so i do think it is really important because it's going to help you as a professional so like we were talking about the cpd yes some people think well why what's the point of it however you're going to be in for a big surprise when the hcpc call you up and expect those 12 pieces of evidence and i do think as a student if you're doing these extracurricular activities anyway it just becomes part of your natural process so your cpd is then not seen as oh gosh it's something else i've got to do and how can i really evidence this it's actually 12 pieces of cpd over two years so that's only six a year we've probably quite easily done that um over the last couple of years anyway and just because it is now part of our natural habit once a month every other month doing something and being able to reflect on it then it doesn't seem like such a chore so I do think being able to sort of get that process ingrained from the start as a student will then help you in your future profession as well. I think something that I'd like to add to that is the personal benefits of doing it so I think I've always I've never minded standing up in front of people and I think that was coming from a classroom but I know that definitely Steph like she was so nervous to speak and honestly when I look at the Steph today and think about the Steph that we had a few years ago even Steph last year is a completely different person but that's actually rubbed off on her assessments as well Uh, so I know that she likes to be modest but she usually goes up in front of an audience and crumbles but she had a um an oral defence, she had an oral defence and got like one of the highest marks because she just got up there and she spoke and I don't think she would have been able to do that without having all of the opportunities that have been given through CPD. Um, I will say, cheeky little plug, if you need to do 12 bits of CPD, you know, we've got almost 80 episodes through Rad Chat. That's, that's your 12 or 80 if you want to reflect on all of them. So, ladies, um, you're heavily involved as well with the Society College of Radiographers um, student group. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And for anyone listening who may be interested in getting involved, what do they need to do? Yeah, of course. So we didn't actually become involved with the Society until after ADC. So it was something that we both wanted to do. But we didn't really know how to get into it at the time. So again, I do think this is something that universities can help to plug because I don't think it's very well advertised. Um, So luckily we got to meet the forum. We got to meet Nick Jameson. um, We got to meet Chris, Ben, Sally and all the other amazing forum representatives there. And it was there that they invited us along. So almost like the non-traditional route. Um, So we've been there for... It'll be coming up for a year now, actually. And then now I am currently in charge of the social media and communications. So these are elected positions, which, again, is crazy because, like Tyler said, I don't think the staff last year would have even put herself up for election. And now to be running their communications and social media is a bit insane. Um, But if you're sat there sort of thinking, how can I get involved? You can reach out to any of us on Twitter. We are a very big happy Twitter family I'd say Facebook but we can't really break that at the minute it's very difficult to get into that I think so Twitter seems to be very heavy um, in terms of professional access as well so you can access the student forum you can drop any of us a message 
if you actually go onto the um, Society of Radiographers page, there's a student page with a link to be able to send Nicola an email to express your interest to join the forum. We don't expect any heavy workload from you. It's We meet once a month, we have a discussion about what's happened that month and make plans for upcoming events and then we have working groups which are exactly what they say on the tin essentially. They involve a bit more effort and a bit more work but currently they're not mandatory to join. We don't want anyone joining thinking that they have to be able to to commit an awful lot of time. We just ask for an hour and a half a month um, and we are really supportive. We do help each other through especially from a third year point of view where you're looking for help to complete your dissertation um, your questionnaires we're able to sort of share those within our groups and within our little system and get those out there for people as well and yeah everybody really supports you and we've I'd say we've made friends for life even all across the country right now and that's both diagnostic and therapeutic radiographers and I don't think without the forum we'd have had that opportunity. Do you find that people have been embracing social media positively because I know there are some people who might be a bit reluctant and maybe don't view it as a necessary part of their day-to-day? I think that's now part of the change. So I do think it's become more relevant, especially since COVID. I know we go back to that, but the only way to communicate with a lot of people after that was via social media, and that's just continued, and it's become part of the daily habits. And I do think social media is going to be sort of one of those things that does become a huge part in education um so obviously we run radicational um and that has been really successful both on twitter instagram and tiktok even i know we don't post on there that often but when we do we do get a lot of questions so we kind of need to i think make a bit of time for that um on twitter we get more sort of professional questions and then instagram is just a bit of a mixed bag really but you also find that you're getting patients that reach out to you from there as well. And you can find out you're having really healthy, interesting conversations like you guys do with RadChat. You'll have patients that might mention something to you and you've never actually considered it at all. Um, and that sort of sparks an interest as well. But also it is really worth saying, and it does go without saying, that you've got to be careful of your content. You've got to make sure that you remain in professional because it can have such positive impacts, but also one negative post that you might put on can have huge repercussions for you. So you do still have to be careful. However, I do think that that social media is going to be a positive force within education for students in the future. And I'm really interested to see where it goes and how it develops. And Steph, how do you protect yourself around social media? So you mentioned with patients. So this is something that Joe and I have been we talk about every day when patients reach out to us it's fantastic but there is an element as you said you have to be professional and obviously protect your own mind as well how do you how do you find that I think you need to understand where those boundaries lie so if it's a patient that's asking me for healthcare advice that that's not gonna fly essentially unfortunately I'm not gonna give them that information I'm happy to signpost them maybe to the best possible service that they may require or other help but I don't think social media should be used in that aspect for patients to discuss diagnosis or ask you what you think of this scan for example I've oh I've had a picture of my x-ray would you like to see it what do you think 
well, I don't think that is professional from that point of view. Um, and that's not within our remit or our scope of practice to be commenting on. So obviously as diagnostic radiographers, a lot of the time we will look at an x-ray and we will know there's something going on. However, it's not currently within our scope of practice to be given that patient that diagnosis. And again, that comes down to time because if you are telling a patient something that might change things for them it could just be a broken bone however if they're self-employed and they've got six weeks off work you haven't got that time and that sort of I forgot what the word was going to say so yeah you haven't really got that time not that you don't care and not that you've not got that commitment to those patients however you don't know how that patient's going to react to that news as well so you've got to be really aware of that and understand that within our scope of practice it isn't something that we are supposed to do it is something that grates me a little bit because that then leaves us with the sort of label as a button pusher when realistically we are a lot more than that and I do think that um, barrier can sort of be bridged by having those conversations with patients but I do understand why we also can't at the same time. So Tyler, you've done quite a bit through Radicational and I know that you had a really successful series around applying for your first job. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you put together and any advice you would give for anyone applying at the moment? Certainly. So first of all, I decided I wasn't going to do it until I got a job. (laughs) I'm not going to jinx it. I'm going to wait until I've actually got a job and then... One, it stands a bit more true because the actions that I've taken have then got you the job. But I thought, if I don't get the job and I've posted all that, then (laughs) it's a bit of a jinx. Um, But I would definitely say I kind of broke down the steps and thinking about a lot of the people that are applying for these jobs, especially people that are on Instagram, are probably a younger demographic. They've probably never had a professional job before. So I thought about really breaking it down into the basics and considering the small things so even down to making sure you have a nice pamper the night before and an early night plan your outfit think about what's professional um so yeah i tried to just break it down into the smallest chunks i possibly could um and just kind of did like a step-by-step approach and tried to do it in a logical order so kind of like from like a week out up to where the actual exam exam where the actual interview date was, uh, even though it does feel like an exam when you have one. Um, so I think my tips would definitely be be prepared. Um, get your friends and family to ask you questions. And we have actually put, we're going to put a cheeky plug in, we have actually put some questions on there. I do have to be honest, they are mainly uh, diagnostic radiography students because that's kind of our area of expertise, well not expertise, but as a student. Um, They are your area of expertise, (laughs) absolutely. But I feel like we know what kind of questions come up and there's a couple of generic ones, but the scenarios are definitely aimed at um, diagnostics. Uh, So I'd say get people to practice with you, practice verbalising it because it's really easy to have an answer in your head or be able to write it down. I think actually getting it out of your mouth is probably the biggest challenge. Um, plan in advance, make sure you've got your outfit like a week before so you're not stressing. Um, 
just having it all sorted, washed, clean, ironed. Um, and I feel like you feel better in yourself and you feel more confident if you feel put together and you feel like a professional. You might come across more like a professional as well, which I think definitely helps. Um, I think those would be my two main tips. So outfit and interview questions for me. Um, I don't know if any stood out to you, Steph, because I know that you've been actually using it, haven't you, to get ready for your interview? Yeah, so it feels a bit odd because I currently don't have a job, but in the same respect, I also haven't had any interviews yet. So I've applied for one job. I've now got an interview. So that's always positive. That's a 100% track record right now. Um, but yeah, I'm currently, my CPD folder is pretty much ready to go. My outfit is almost ready to go. I might change my mind on it though. Um, but yeah, definitely the interview questions are helping me prepare and helping me look at scenarios because I think that's the biggest one for me and probably the biggest struggle for um, other students that are interviewing as well when they go tell me about a time and it just sends a shiver down your spine because you can probably answer a question about Irma and about radiation protection and about Chris and maybe a scenario actually on placement however when they say tell me about a time that you dealt with a challenging situation or tell me about a time that you worked as a team and you probably do this on a daily basis However, trying to pick that out in that stressful interview environment, if you've not prepared, is going to be very difficult as well. So, yeah, that's very much my preparation time at the minute, which is difficult because we've got a viva 10 days after as well. So it's trying to juggle that at the same time. In an ideal world, I'd have liked to have secured a job by now, just so that could sort of be put to the back of my mind. And then we're on electives for the next two weeks as well. So it is smack bang in the middle of that but again that's just about your time management and juggling it all and ultimately we started this journey to want to become a diagnostic radiographer so if you're not preparing to be the best that you can be in that interview then there's not much point is there really because you're going to get a lot of candidates and you want to be the one that stands out so if you don't prepare then like they say prepare to fail I ask what are your future career aspirations because obviously as diagnostic radiographers you graduate but then you have the potential to maybe specialize in a particular field have you thought about that going forwards yeah so for me I went through I've gone through a few little motions to be honest I went in starting wanting to do ultrasound because that's all I knew from my previous job and then decided it wasn't for me my dissertation is currently around MRI However, I would love, and my clinical tutor will laugh if she listens to this, I would love her job. And she knows that as well, because I think it brings the best of both worlds. We love having a chat and we love teaching other students. And I think that brings that sort of historical part of me wanting to be a teacher when I left school. Maybe I still want to be a teacher, but I also still want that hands-on clinical practice as well. So for me, a clinical tutor role would be the dream ultimately or like a clinical skills lecturer so some of our lecturers do our skills labs but they also lecture at the same time and that would be the best of both worlds. I feel like mine's quite similar to Steph as well Uh, so the job that I've got on offer for is for plain film x-ray and that's like the usual route into uh, diagnostic radiography. I am hoping to make it rotational with CT so I can actually do a bit of both and have the best of both worlds 
Um, but I know in the future I definitely want to go into education uh, because like I said I absolutely loved teaching I just didn't like the all the other rigmarole that came with it so I think if I can put my passion of radiography my passion of teaching together put it together hopefully it would be a match made in heaven and I think being a clinical tutor is a really good stepping stone for that because you're actually still in the hospital you're still practicing you're training the students on the job i'm very much a hands-on person so i think for me that would be really good uh, but hopefully in i don't know in 20 years time you'll see me and steph <laughs> doing some lecturing a nice little duo um but yeah i think we're both probably going to go into the area of teaching and education so steph obviously with the transition uh into being a qualified person can you tell me about a time where you found good role modelling? This is like being in an interview right now. I would probably say my clinical tutor, and I probably don't tell her enough. Um, so she was on maternity leave when I was in first year, so we had a different clinical tutor, Chris, and he was fantastic. Um, completely different sort of role model to Nick. And then Nick came back in second year, and she is very similar to me, so she has two very young children. Um, they're pretty much a year apart, mine are two years, so it's not as bad. But yeah, she sort of manages to juggle that. She has her band seven role. Um, and she, for me, sort of makes me realise that it's not impossible to advance in the ranks just because you're also a mum. So I would say, and if she listens to this, she'll probably love it, um, that she is unknowingly my inspiration because of the person that she is and who she inspires me to be she inspires me to be the best radiographer and hopefully if I'm successful in the interview that I will be lucky to work alongside her in the near future I would say for me there's one particular person at university that really really stands out and I feel like she stands out for both me and Steph uh, so our new program leader Sarah she is phenomenal and the thing that I love about her is that she has such high standards and like for you Steph said we both love a challenge and she sets that bar so high and you know that she's doing it because she wants the best practice she wants Salford to have the best diagnostic radiography students out there and she speaks so passionately and holds it to such a high bar that that really motivates me and I always want to do really well for her so I'd say that she's my biggest inspiration and I would love to get a first class degree and walk across that stage in front of her because she's honestly got us through this journey and even through like personal things that when we've not been well or if for whatever reason we've not been able to get into uni she's always been there for us always checking on us she's the kind of person that will email you to check that you're okay because you've not been able to get in or for whatever reason. Um, so I feel like from a pastoral and an academic point of view, all of our um, lecturers are fantastic, but she really, really stands out for me. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, Tyler, you've given a lot of top tips so far, but just to finish us off, what, what would your top tips be for our listeners? Always strive to be the best that you can be, I would say. Never settle. Um, I feel like that's the avenue that me and Steph have taken and it's we've not gone far wrong I don't feel even if that's a case of balancing your home life try and have that best balance it's not about being the academic greatest it's not about being a band day after you've been qualified for a year <laughs> it's about 
being the best of your life and getting the most out of your life. Um, and I'd say, don't be scared, definitely. And if you can find a partner, I feel like you two are an absolutely fantastic partnership. Steph is honestly my rock. If you can find someone to do the journey with you, do that. Um, but yeah, just try and be the best, I would say. And best against your own standards, not best against other people's standards, because everyone's standards are different. Uh, that could be being the best mum. It could be making sure that you finish your uni work in the morning so you can pick your kids up at three o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, so Kylie goes on about how we both search for the opportunities realistically at her. And I just end up saying yes most of the time because she knows that I will say yes to all of these crazy ideas. Um, so she's very much the ideas woman and that's fantastic because she has that confidence to sort of make us both follow our passion. She knows that I'm not the most confident of people and won't necessarily put myself out of there. Um, so she sort of does that for us. Um, from a patient point of view to your listeners, I would say have the courage to speak up. Don't keep it bottled in. Um, if you connect with that healthcare professional, be it a diagnostic radiographer in those few minutes that you're with them, one of the biggest skills we have is we have to build up a relationship in such a short space of time. And to be a good diagnostic radiographer, you have to have that skill. So you've already won half the battle there because you've built that rapport with that patient. So from a patient point of view, I'd say speak up. We're not going to judge and you might meet that one person that's going to help and really start you on that path. Um, from a healthcare professional point of view, I'd maybe say be the person that actually listens. Like, show that you care. We know you care because you wouldn't have started this journey. Nobody goes into the NHS because they don't care. Everybody does. And sometimes, especially with it being so hard right now, I get it's stressful. But I'd always say remember your why. Remember even if you've been qualified 20 years, remember why you started this journey. And ultimately, it is to make a difference to our patients every single day. And I definitely say don't forget that. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I feel very motivated. Thank you both for those top tips. They were brilliant. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on again, sharing your stories and looking forward to seeing you qualified soon. Thanks everyone for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Naman Jokansen and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflector questions posted, along with any links to resources and literature that we've discussed. Uh, to com- receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form link to the podcast. Uh, so our next guest to feature will be Amanda Webster, who will be discussing her PhD research in motion management strategies for radiotherapy and uh, the young estro track. Thank you everyone for listening and take care. UKIA Conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. They've changed the programme to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous Congresses. There are more sessions on service optimisation, education and workforce. Something that we love is research, and it's at the heart of the programme. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches, and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too, 
You can also check out CPD outside of the program in case of the day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the program aimed at students. The program is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register, and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. And don't forget to come and check us out in our Rad Chat pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool.